I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello there, welcome to the very latest Andy J podcast and this one is the third one to land this week. If you are listening to these in real time, wow, you are my favourites by a long, long way, then you will know that this podcast is dropping on the Thursday. Now on Tuesday, we gave you Alan McGee, about uh, 48 minutes with him. Yesterday, Wednesday, we gave you the wonderful Sally Phillips, a half an hour in her company. And now it is the turn of the Kemps. Now, I'm very happy to say we have a brand new interview, an exclusive conversation with the brilliant Gary Kemp. He will be the first person you hear today. And I'll tell you what, the passion that he has for music and the... The way he portrays that passion is just so infectious and brilliant, and I'm so excited for you to hear it. I, I just, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of him as a person. I'm not a massive Spandau Ballet fan or anything like that. If you're into them, great, good for you, that's brilliant. They're an amazing band with a huge following. It's just not my sort of vibe. However, Gary is a bloke, wow. He is great, great company, and he speaks with such intelligence and passion and insight, and he's lived there, breathed it, done it, got the T-shirt, and got the most awesome David Bowie uh, conversation as well and brilliant anecdote about his time with DB so really really cool and then we thought well because we've got Gary last September September uh, 2020 I had the the fortune of spending some time with Gary's brother Martin and his sister-in-law Shirley so Martin and Shirley Kemp of course who are married uh, they came to the truck which is this brilliant truck we have which unfolds it's a studio on wheels basically a lorry that turns into a studio and I pitched up to a, a fancy golf course slash resort somewhere in Watford. Very nice place. And the truck unfolded and the Kemps joined us and we had a really good chat. So I thought, well, look, if we're going to give you Gary Kemp on his own special pod, let's let's throw in Martin and Shirley as well. So first you'll hear from Gary. And I'm so pleased that we're doing this. And then you'll hear from the lovely Martin and Shirley Kemp as well. It's a Kemp special, an Andy J podcast Kemp special. Hoorah! Okay, thank you very much for your company. Let's get straight on with it. The Andy J podcast. I am very pleased to welcome my superstar guest now. It is the one and only Gary Kemp. Gary, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me on. Very, very excited to be chatting to you, Gary, because, well, first and foremost, there's new music out and it's courtesy of you. How awesome is this? Rather sort of nervous as well, you know, <laughs> uh, not to have a gang around me. You know, this is the first solo album I've released since 1995. Yeah. Um, when I dabbled at solo record, a solo record at, in the middle of Britpop. Um <laughs> I wasn't sure whether that was the right thing to do, but it's, that's an album I'm proud of. But uh, no, normally, you know, I'm promoting an album with either Spandau Ballet or, or, or Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets. So um, 
you know, I've got that feeling of security of other people also taking flack. Uh, but no, this is this is sticking my neck out. Is there a big pressure change, Gary? Because, I mean, you say, you know, normally you've got the others behind you, but with Spandar, for example, you wrote all the songs. So if people love them, it's kind of down to you. Um, yeah, no, I think I think the, the pressure is, is slightly different in different ways. In, in the writing process, the pressure is much less because you're writing yourself. Um, you're not writing for a band that has a set, certain amount of musicians or or your um you've got to please those individuals um and uh, you know help pay their mortgage like you know it's it's something this is this is less pressure in the writing but i guess more pressure in the in the promotion and and in and then in the presentation um but that's what it's about i like it you know and this was this was virtually made in lockdown so um you know, it was it was my way of, uh, of processing that period in my life and uh, and trying to get some music out at the same time because no one could play live. And what was the thinking behind, like you say, 25 years on from your last solo album? Was it just because you're in a really good space within yourself or because bands couldn't get together? What was the what was the mindset? I think a little bit of both. Um, for me, it was the confidence that's built in me as uh, as a front artist, really. Um, with working with Nick Mason, Pink Floyd's uh, drummer, and his band Source Full of Secrets. You know, I've been on the road with them for the two years previous. Um, you know, the Pink Floyd fraternity are, are fairly uh, strict about who they like and who they don't like. And, you know, I think there was a lot of uh, people freaking out when they heard that uh, an ex-pop star was, was about to be doing Pink Floyd stuff, playing David Gilmore stuff, playing... Um, Sid Barrett's songs, and um, you know I was welcomed by them all, and uh, and I've had a great two years of confidence building from them. I think finding my voice, finding my guitar playing, um, and I was meant to be on the road with Nick um, when lockdown happened. Yeah. I'd already got into the process of writing this album, but then that, that lockdown gave me the opportunity to to just work on it wholeheartedly. Um, that's probably why it's taken me so long. Uh, I'm still growing, even at my age. I'm still, you know, nervous and, and putting toes in the water and then believing I can do something. And as it started to write itself, this record, I became more and more thrilled by, by what I was doing um, and enjoying it much more and, and wanting, as any artist does, to communicate that to people. But you know what? I was going to ask you, Gary, about the sort of, and this is layman stuff, okay? You're, you're the songwriting whiz kid. I have the opportunity to ask you questions, which is great. And often people talk about the band's difficult second album. You know, it's, it's one of those things that you hear about because, of, you know, the, the, the individuals involved, they have a different lifestyle. They have the wealth. They have the, you know, the, the adoration. They have the ability to know they've made it because they're a success. You know, so there's this, this thing. You must have heard it. People say, oh, it's the difficult second album. And I, yeah, was, I wasn't going to ask you about the difficult second album because you've written so many. But actually, it has taken you 25 years to come up with a second <laughs> album. <laughs> Well, well, the difficult second album never came out. <laughs> it was made and hidden away. Um, you know, I, I think I've got a, uh, I'm in a good place um, emotionally, but at my age, and, uh, there is a lot of reflection that goes on in one's life. Um, you know, I have a young family. Um, and those guys didn't know me in all of those previous incarnations. Um, and maybe I didn't even know myself. You know, we all change as we grow older. Yeah. Uh, those versions of ourselves 
um, we, that we look back on, you know, how do, how do they fit into our life now? What relevance do they have? So I think that some of the writing on this record became about that, became about who, who I am now and who I was then and, and trying to make some connections. Um, not all of the record, but a lot of it. And I think it wasn't so personal that it's not to be understood by everybody because I think it, we all have that contemplation um, about our place um, in time. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that, that became some of the process of the record. It's incredible. But there's one, for example, for example, sorry, Andy, for example, there's a, you know, there's a track on there about, um, called working for the band, which is, um, I, I hasten to say, isn't about me, fan of ballet to get back together, but it's about <laughs> being a fan. It's, it's a sort of homage to a fan, a hymn to being a, a fanatic about music. And that feeling we all had when we were kids, that buzz of, of dressing up and going to see show and excitement and, and, and how they bands put us on for me in my, my it would have been David Bowie, T-Rex, you know, put us on another planet, yeah. um, took us somewhere special. And how that feeling kind of has never left me. I still want to see that. I'm still waiting for that band to come around the corner. I think my greatest moments in, in music were experienced as a fan, not as a musician. That's really interesting. So you, because of course, you know, we as the listeners, as you say, you take us on journeys and, and we go and support bands and we, because of how it makes us feel. So when you're up on the stage, when you're playing a track that you know is moving an audience, perhaps for the first time, because of course, lots of bands, they debut tracks in front of a crowd and you never quite know how it's going to land. That's, yeah, it's rarer now, but yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's less magical than, than the people receiving it. You know, it is, it is, you know, my, um, what gives me goosebumps when I think back? So, for example, I remember being in the front row at the Marquee Club in 1973 when I watched David Bowie shooting at American TV. It was his last moment as he Stardust. And, and I, I took a bangle off my wrist and I reached out, called his name, and he came up to me and he held that bangle with me and looked into my eyes and he said, thank you. Wow. And you know, he had this big sort of, sphere painted on his forehead. He had no eyebrows. He was he was someone from another world. He didn't live in the council flats that I lived in, you know. And and um and that moment still resonates with me. There are various other moments like it as I grew up. And even now, that feeling, you know, when I go and see someone like the Stones, as they hit the stage, oh my God. But if when I when I hit the as a musician, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff going on in your head. The technical worries you know, the, the euphoria isn't really allowed because you're thinking so much about what you're doing. Mm. Wow. Did you have a chance to remind David of that, of that moment? I did. Years later, yeah, I did. Um, I, obviously, I bumped into him at Live Aid, but I was too nervous to speak. Yes. I finally met him properly in about 1990 in America, and we, 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 we had a few um, days together, and, uh, and uh, he was surprising down to earth, which, which was, was a, a kind of, contradiction for me because I wanted to be greater than me, than human beings. <laughs> yeah, well, we, uh, there's that thing, isn't it? Don't meet your heroes. But, you know, when you do, I don't know. More yeah, but that. he was a lovely man. Really funny guy. Really funny guy. Really, you know, charming. And I think that's why, you know, his career went on and on. Charming and artistic. You know, they're, they're quite rare when they come together. Um, you know, there's a lot of very artistic 
best out there, but they can be a bit aloof. And David never had that. Right. It's interesting, Gary, just listening to you chatting, you're so passionate still for music. And and that's clearly, it's brilliant for the world because it means you're going to yeah. keep producing and keep delivering. You're not just going to go, oh, I've made some money, that's enough. I'll just sit back and enjoy it now. You know, I talk about music every day. To ver- I have various friends, we text and we phone and we send each other clips from YouTube and whatever it might be, you know. And, and it can be something super obscure and electronic. And next minute, it can be it can be a, a Springsteen gig that, that a particular moment in the show. We need to share. We need to share. And um, that's what makes me go to my piano. Right. It makes me go to my guitar. My love of music. And I've had this feeling since I was very young when I first got Burt Weed and playing a day book and a, and a, a guitar for Christmas. And I was 11 years old and I started learning one of the songs in the book and it had four chords and, and I started singing over those four chords and I went, you know what? I really like these chords, but I just, I don't relate to that melody. And I started coming up with my own melody and then my own words. And I didn't even know songwriting existed, but I made a song and it's about ownership. So when I hear other people make music, I love it so much. I want to own something like it. and the way I do that is by making my own version of, of um, the mood that's coming into me from that song. Wow. That's, I, hopefully that's not plagiarism at any time. <laughs> yeah, but, I just like uh, this riff, but, that's quite nice. Yeah. But, and, and I've survived this long. But no, I just think it's about, you know, when you sit at the piano and you, you've got thoughts in your head, but you can't really express them verbally, and some music starts to happen, and then some words start coming together. Uh, you know, it can come in different ways. I mean, a lot of this album I wrote lyrics first, and that can also be be a way of approaching ownership okay. of your story. What is your process, Gary? Because we've heard so many different variants on the songwriting process. McCartney famously gets them in dreams sometimes. I suppose it must be really convenient. You know, Elton oh, John obviously just dreams, gets... Dreams, yeah. yeah Elton dreams John. yesterday, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Oh, that's, that sounds all right. I'll just pen that down and go back to sleep. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Is it, is it a labour of love? Do you have to kind of thrash it out or, or does it sort of flow through you as you so, sort of described there does it just kind of come when you're at the piano or the guitar you know the best songs have always come uh, quickly and and songs that that live half finished um somewhere on a on a tape or in your head uh, don't resolve best of all um a lot of this album i wrote uh, on while i was traveling um in europe and america with with nick mason and um, <clears throat> they came as lyrics, and I was needing to write those lyrics. I was really enjoying the stories that I was finding, and I get really strict when I write the lyrics, so they have to be—they have to scan exactly the same on each verse. But the words, if to put words first, I think doesn't compromise the lyric. So um, often when you've written a tune and it's and it's a catchy little number, and you think, well, what can I call this? And how? how right, I need to start writing some words for this. The words take sort of second uh, to, to to the music, and and then we're trying to you know fit words into particular melodies. They don't work as well for me, um, but I have written that way. Um, okay, so a song like True, you know, there were there were there were two influences that were going on in my head at that time. I, I, I um I wanted to write an Al Green type soul song. 
that was one thing. Nice. But the main, but the thing that really triggered it for me is I was watching Let It Be in 1992. This would have been uh, so Let It Be the album, um, the film of yeah. the making of the album, yeah. which was on TV for some reason at that point. Before McCartney um, decided he didn't want anyone else to see it anymore, <laughs> and <clears throat> and it was John Lennon's Dig a Pony, which uh, yeah yeah. Yeah, dig a pony, and you think, <laughs> wow, you know, love the way he took that word. I just snaked it around, and then I grabbed my guitar and I came up with the beginning of the of the true chorus, which doesn't sound like that, but it was inspired by that. So, you know, I think um, things it's about that ownership thing, wanting it to be yours. Yeah, this is really. Do you know what? It's magic listening to you, Gary. I, don't, I know that sounds so sycophantic, and I don't mean it to, but it, just the way you're so passionate and excited by music, it's, it can only breed enthusiasm and passion and excitement for what you're doing because it's just so informed and so it's it's bred in love, isn't it? You love it. Well, I still like you know, and I still like new music as well, you know, and I'm always listening to artists that you know have have something different to offer and uh, so it's not just all tied up in nostalgia um, and there's nothing wrong with that but they, you know all of us have a f- there are certain songs in our life that you know when we reached puberty uh, were, were, were out there and they get under our skin and they stay there forever of course and, and um, but I think you know any you know artists trying to express themselves are worth, look- are worth looking for because you know we make art to communicate because and we listen to to art to try and understand ourselves better. So I can come up with a story which is coming from somewhere inside of the problems that I might have, and then you deliver it out there, and someone goes, "Wow, I thought I was the only one. I get it now. You know, maybe you've helped me here." And I think you know that's why we walk around galleries, we read books, we watch films, we listen to music. Yes. Do you like to challenge yourself, Gary? Because you, you've done such a lot, not just musically, but, you know, as a performer, as a, as a man in, involved in a number of charities as well, your acting and so on, and your podcast, you're always putting yourself out there, aren't you? Taking risks. Um, yeah, as long as it doesn't take up too much time, because you know, <laughs> I've got, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad of, of three young boys, um, and, and, I, and I think that's probably the most creative thing anyone can do that right is hard and it's it's your legacy beyond anything else is uh, the children you make and how how they develop into adults so it's still a priority for me and I, i'm not the kind of guy who's such a workaholic that he's running away from that all the time that that's a major part of my life um but i do i suppose i get nervous about anything you know i say yes to a play and it's a serious play and people you know, I know when I walk in the room full of actors, people might say, what's he doing in here? There's lots of actors out there that went to Rada. Um, and I know, so my challenge sometimes is greater, but uh, I, I love the process of making things. And, um, you know, maybe promoting isn't so enjoyable, but, but the process of making this record uh, or making, a you know, in the rehearsal room for six weeks, making a play or a live show, you know, these are the, it's fantastic to work with other people and to really, you know, um, come up with something that wasn't there before. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned you're a father to three young boys. I am as well, incidentally. I also have three boys. What's the secret, Gary? How, how do you be a good dad? What's What does that mean? Well, you know, I'm always thrashing myself for getting things wrong, so I've no idea, you know. Um, 
you know, trying to minimise the chaos is, <laughs> is one thing. Uh, trying to offer options to them uh, creatively is another thing. And love, you know, I mean, I grew up with my brother in a house full of, of support and love. And uh, you know, that's not to say that my dad didn't, you know, and my mom didn't pull me up sharp and shout at me and, and, and ban me from doing things if I got it wrong, you know. But, you know, there was love and support there. And, and I think that's what gave me confidence as a young person to go out and form a band and the kind of things that I, I do and take those risks now. Because, you know, I grew up with that sort of rock behind me, you know, that I could swim back to if anything went wrong. And of course, even though they've gone uh, and I left the home a long time ago, you know, that rock is still there metaphorically and spiritually for me. Right. Oh, that's massive, isn't it? When you know that you've got that sort of support emotionally, it's, I mean, you can achieve anything, really. If you know that you're loved and valued, the world's your oyster. Yeah, so, you know, you know so maybe you know, sitting making this album um, and, and, you know, I was, I was thrilled when, you know, um, Sony wanted to sign it and wanted to put it out. And, you know, you're always happy that people like it and respect it. But, but I think, you know, there are elements of my childhood past that, that were supported strongly enough that that lead me to still make music now at my age let's talk about the new the new album and the new single of course gary ahead of the game the new yeah. album in solo that's going to be well it's available to pre-order now it's coming out in june what does success mean for you how important is it to you that it that it tracks that it charts what does it mean is it is it about people coming back to you going that really moved me that was amazing do you want great reviews what's where are you at mentally with it yeah, you know, it's a, it's a terrifying time. You know, I'm, I think the most important thing is to really believe in it yourself and, I, and, I, and, I, and be proud of it yourself and therefore not, you know, and, and as it started to come out, normally in any work you do, as things start to become more public or if you invite people in to listen, you start to hear the fractures and the faults. And, and I, can, I still believe in every track on this record and I still am proud of it. And, you, you know, I, I don't care what, track people listen to. I'm not trying to avoid any, any of the songs on the record. The record seems to be a real piece for me. It's, you know, it's, it's, as I said, it's reflective, even though it's quite out tempo at times, you know, it can still reflective. And it's, um, it's also about city living. A lot of the lyrics ended up, you know, uh, ended up seeming more relevant in lockdown than they did before. Um, I, uh, I want people to, to hear it. And uh, excited by it if they can, and surprise people. We didn't expect it to 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 get the musicality of it. Um, there are lots of hooks in there, and I'm trying to hook people in. <laughs> Do as a songwriter. <laughs> no, this is this is terrific. I mean, you know, I've I've only been able to hear two of the tracks so far, and musically they couldn't. They, they are so different. You know, there's not there's not one set sound that's coming out of this album, presumably. Yeah, well, well, ahead of ahead of the game. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm unashamed, unashamedly a fan of yacht rock when it's done well, and uh, and uh, and I think there was a sense that this song had that euphoria, that Todd Rundgren kind of feeling about it, and I and uh, <clears throat> uplifting. And you know, it's kind of about my wife, I suppose, but it can be about anyone. Story in a relationship when the person that you're in love with is always ahead of you, you know, is always full of confidence and always running with the ball and you're just doing everything to catch up. And that was kind of what the, that this song was about. Um, 
you know, there, there are references to the seventies in the, on the album. You know, I worked with Toby Chapman was my co-producer on the record, and I was spinning records while we were, you know, producing this. And I'm saying, you know, those backing vocals on that ten sixty track, you know, the way the backing vocals and guitar interplay on on that wing song. Nice. You no, know, that's that's the kind of atmosphere I was after. But at times, there are things more dramatic on the record. You know, in solo, which is the track that opens the album, which you were talking about, which is six and a half minutes long, you know, is, is a, is a story about a couple that are sort of alone in a, in a city. I, I, I started writing, I was partly influenced by this painting by Edward Hopper, <clears throat> where two people that are together, you, you're looking through a window at them, seem very far apart. And he's paper and she's got a finger rested on a, rested on a key of a piano. And I sort of wonder what the next, what the note would be if she played it. And, and I started to write a song about the woman going to work on her daily life. One, a song I really love is, is Paul McCartney's Another Day. And I suppose there was an element of, you know, I wanted to write about that sort of everyday thing in the city and how difficult that can be and how alone we can feel surrounded by millions of people, ironically. Um, and then it became about him and then it became about the two of them together. And the song expanded and expanded massively. And I guess, you know, working with, a member of Pink Floyd, I've sort of now, you know, I'm not scared and I, to, to be proud of some of my prog rock past <laughs> and, to, and to, and also to expand things musically. I mean, the artists, I suppose that I was plugging into would have been songwriters like Jimmy Webb or Scott Walker. <clears throat> um, but also, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, the moods, that a that a like Pink Floyd can create in a song, yeah. so uh, yeah, that that's all. All my stuff is filled. my eclectic record collection and upbringing and passions are all ciphering through my songwriting into this record. Oh, brilliant! How exciting! You've mentioned, of course, Nick Mason, drummer from Pink Floyd. You're you're in his band, Nick Mason, Saucer Full of Secrets. Uh, has he taken you around Ten Tenths yet and shown you his unbelievable car collection? I'm I'm guessing yeah. you probably had a little drive. Yeah, I've done it all. I've been in his plane. I've been. I've seen his car collection. I've <laughs> been to his office with, with the Formula One car, Ferrari, sitting in his office. Um, he's a great man. He's really, really a special man. He's he's uh, he doesn't have any ego. Um, he enjoys life. Uh, he takes it at this slow pace, and we dug him out of retirement. You know, he hadn't played drums for twenty years, and of course, Guy Pratt has played in Pink Floyd. Um, you know, Guy who I is, plays bass and sourceful and yes. is my fellow rock on tour in our podcast. Yeah. Um, and, and guy, um, didn't think that Nick would do this, this idea, this concept of doing a, a, a band that played and concentrated unlike Dave and Roger and all the myriad of tribute acts, but concentrated on the pre dark side of the moon, psychedelic stuff, if you like the first five albums. And, he didn't think he'd do that, and I didn't think I would do it. I didn't think I would be accepted. But we, we got this together, and it's really, really caught on, and people sort of like the energy of it and like the fact that it's not, you know, 15 musicians standing around thoughtfully on stage in black T-shirts. This is much more, you know, far, it's back to the roots of Pink Floyd and in many ways was, you know, has more kin to, to being called Punk Floyd, I feel. But... Um, uh, and and Nick has been the star of the show. His drumming is phenomenal, and we did a DVD in a, a live album together, um, which came out. God, I'm confused. Who knows? 2020, 2019. 
we're all confused now because yes, time has right. stood still for <laughs> yeah. so long. Um, and and, uh, and and you can go ahead and listen to that and see it still. It's uh, it's a great piece of work, I think. Yes, and it's, I met Nick last year, and he doesn't sit still, does he? He's always like like all good drummers. He's constantly got a rhythm going on on his legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know, but having a rhythm going on a drum kit is something completely different. And I think he, he, all of us were a bit nervous when we first entered the room and started playing together. Um, but you could see as his confidence grew, his drum kit grew as well. Yeah. Single bass drum to a double bass drum to more and more tom toms, <laughs> <laughs> and then a massive gong. Brilliant. <laughs> well, of course, the gong and the great thrill was when we play, <laughs> when we played in when we played in New York and Rogers Walters came on stage and. So took the gong mallet off of Nick and started smashing himself, and the crowd went absolutely ballistic. And we did, um, we did set the controls for the heart of the sun. It was great, amazing, amazing. Gary, listen, just two more things for you. I know I'm taking up your time, so I apologise for that, but I'm excited by this. The first one I've got to ask you about. It's all true because it was just hilarious. I mean, <laughs> utterly brilliant. Are we going to have another one? Because it was the, it was a sort of comedy docudrama that you did with your brother about, yeah. about the two of your lives as agents to each other writing songs in the back of a milk float and so, and so on just too much fun so well, it was a brain it was a brainchild of, of reese thomas and uh, it was very um it was very funny to do and to develop and uh, and it went down well i mean you do something like that and you, you're going to career down just <laughs> ripping out of yourself but it's uh i think you know i think people appreciate someone you know <laughs> laughing at the the possibilities of this kind of precious life that we both might be might be leading. um and so yeah it was great fun to do and um and 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 kemp's as in kemp's all true will be continuing yes! and uh, the bbc have already asked for another one <laughs> and um so. But but Reese is really busy this year, you know, and and so I think it's going to. But we've uh, put it this way: we've we've had a write, few writing sessions already, and we are really about it. Brilliant! I've seen it three times. It's one of the funniest things. Because, <laughs> great, great, great! It's because of the way you guys deliver it. You're you're so committed to the script, and just it's deadpan excellence. I loved it. It was hilarious. You know, you know when when you've been in the business as long as we have, you you know every. Every um, yeah, the people can react in you know in that style to each other, and I think that's that's what we were trying to capture. Uh, you know, it was it was the fantasy of the way people really want the Kemp's to be behind <laughs> behind the camera, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I might, I would I have my my my, my famous uh, vegan meat substitute Wonge. I think <laughs> yes. that may, that may make uh, a resurgence in the next one too. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I'm delighted there's another one. I think that's great, great news. Uh, and Gary, my last one for you, because I've done the maths. And my maths is obviously limited, but nonetheless, I've worked out that you can't, you shouldn't have the sort of pause that you had for your last one. You can have it if you want, but if you go another 25 years, <laughs> that means the next, the next album will be when you're 86, which of course you no, can do, no, but it seems a little no. cruel. No, I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed this and I feel at home making this record and um and i knew that i was happy because as soon as i delivered it to sony i started writing another one Great. and uh, and and so i'm already halfway through writing what i think is going to be the follow-up to this which will you know could be could be next year um although i have commitments to source full of secrets uh, in the first half of next year which i'm still excited about but um yeah no i'm keeping this one going good 
Good, because I don't, you know, I don't want to wait another twenty-five years, Gary. That would just seem a little silly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Time shorter. Um, and indeed, yes. Um, Gary, thank you so much for your company. I wish you every success in the world with the new stuff. I think it's going to, well, it's clearly going to be brilliant, isn't it? It's clearly going to so, be So, yeah. So, Ahead of the Game, available to uh, download now, and you can pre-order in slow of the album. Man, I had to get that in. Said, Sony will be happy. Said like a professional. I would have picked you up on it, don't worry. I'll, I'll make sure it's repeated during the show, but thrilled to bits, Gary. Thanks, and thanks what, mate. What amazing company. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Podcast. So, guys, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. I've, I've, I've had the book in my hands for a little while now. Oh, great. And I've, I've, I've had a chance to go through it. I want to talk to you first and foremost, right at the start. You, you've dedicated to our beautiful Yog. Yeah, of course. And I'm, I'm completely lost as to who that could be. No, you're not. Are you really? Well, I mean, I've been given a hint as to who it might be because I came out and I was like, so is, is this a pet or what? But it's, no, it's, it's actually somebody who was very famous in a huge part of course, he's George yeah. Michael, which, yeah. Is, yeah. which uh, we know him as Jog, which uh, is his real name, uh, but he's family to us. And he was involved so much in our lives and Shirley's especially that um, it was, it went without saying that the book goes to him. I mean, I've heard the most incredible things about your relationship with him in terms of his influence on the fact that you guys are together, mm. saving your life in a way, yeah, etc. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sort of spend the whole chat yeah, talking yeah. about George Michael, yeah. but it, it's, it's good to have that conversation first, which is, of course, you were in Wham, you were at school together, and he was a big part in you making the phone call that led to the first date, wasn't he? Yeah, so obviously my relationship with him, the fact that it's Yog, I've never called him George Michael, or so... It, and that George Michael character wasn't who I was friends with. I was friends with, you know, someone, as you say, that I kind of grew up with. Um, and we were a big influence on each other. So uh, we used to go to George's house and listen to music in his bedroom. And one of the bands we both loved was Spandau. And then as Wham was starting to kind of get a little known, we got invited to go to um, a theatre premiere. And I'd never even, I didn't really know what a theatre premiere was. I didn't even dress up, didn't wear any makeup, just kind of just crashed along there. And then George came running up to me going, Spandau here, Spandau here. <laughs> and I just froze. I went, no, no I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sit in the, let's get, get Martin to come over because they knew that I fancied him. And I literally hid in this little kind of alcove in the theatre. And next minute I saw my friend David bringing George, um, bringing Martin over to me. And George beaming, going like nudging me. <laughs> I just, oh, I was so embarrassed. I could have killed them. So anyway, that night, little did I, and little did I know that Martin wanted to meet me. So that it'd have been very different if I'd known that. Uh, Martin then said, "Would you like to come to a wine bar?" So we went to a wine bar, and as we, um, George and I were leaving, Martin gave me a piece of paper and said, "Give me a call." I held on to that piece of paper for about three weeks because I was too scared to call him. Was it fear or was it the treating mean, keep him keen? Thing? No, it was just fear. You've oh, got wow. to remember, in our days, it wasn't like you could send a text on a mobile. You had to call the family home because both of us still lived mm. at home with our parents. And I felt intimidated to call right. his house thinking, how many other girls are going to be ringing saying, can I speak to Martin? <laughs> so uh, George one day said, what are you going to call? He was really frustrated with me. So we ran into his sister's bedroom, picked their phone up, he dialed it, and then just went, go. Brilliant. So Brilliant. that is that story. Was it one of those phones which had, because I remember that time as well, you know, again, I mean, how did we ever meet to date? You know, you'd say, yeah. right, I'll see you at yeah. seven o'clock outside the cinema and just hope, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. But 
I mean, our phone at home had the longest cable going, so you wouldn't <laughs> have to talk in front of your phones. parents. Yeah, no, yeah. No, this was a big chunky phone hidden in his sister's bedroom, and thank God he did that, because I don't think I would have called Martin. It was the old Dickensian Bakelite, you know, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like quite a baller move from like, listen, put a paper, there's my number. Yeah. You know, rather than asking for Shirley's number, what was yeah. the thinking there? Uh, it was too cool. Was it? What? You were so cool. Uh, well, to give a piece of paper. Yeah, my no, number. no, you didn't want me to call you. No, it was like. I mean, you'd want to call me. Oh, yeah, I, thought, yeah. I, I didn't. I thought it was too much, uh, too much front to say, "Can I have your number?" You know, if you give somebody True. your number, then you're giving We've them the option. The option. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. So he's but, a gentleman. But I had seen Shirley. Yeah. First time I ever saw Shirley was uh, on when we're doing Young Guns on Top of the Pops, and I was at home with my mum and dad. And we, I remember so clearly the day that I was sitting on the floor on my mum and dad's carpet with my back up against the arm of the chair and uh, watching the Thursday night Top of the Pops. And Shirley came on and I was absolutely obsessed with the blonde girl in the white dress. And to the point when, you know, that, that evening when we met mm. uh, uh, that show. At the theatre. At the theatre. Um, I felt like I already knew her. Because I was so obsessed. That's nuts. And I just so, didn't know that. So when we were writing the book, we didn't write it together. We both went off and did our own separate kind of sessions and getting to grips with it. So when I read, because Martin, when he, he met me, he never told me that story. He kept it kind of cool. Yeah. And it really wasn't until I read the first part where he talks about how he felt about me. I, I just couldn't sleep that night. I still, I just took me back to being that young girl thinking, wow, I never had a clue he was that into me. Yeah, you know, sorry, but uh, that, that's the idea, was the idea when we started the book, you know, because I wanted to put it together for a long time, but I always felt like Shirley's and I, my, our lives were like kind of uh, a little bit of a movie where we've got a plot and a subplot and the, the plot and the subplot keep moving, uh, you know, taking it in turns to yeah. be the lead and the, and the backup story and the lead and the backup story. And uh, so I always felt like that. And I, I think it was probably because, you know, I've got history in film and, and directing and all of that. I see everything as a movie anyway. Right. So um, that it was why a good I wanted... Movie. It would well. I mean, it's real life. Which yeah, is it's real the best, life. It's isn't a real it? That's why story, I, I yeah. wanted to uh, put the book together where we were. It's both of our autobiographies rather than one. I love the perspectives of it as well because it is. It's one chapter taken care of by yeah. one of you, then seen it from the other perspective. Yeah. Did you write simultaneously? Were you in the same room going, right, listen, no. let's write about our wedding no, now, go. absolutely you know? no, not. No. That's what I'm saying, we no. absolutely separated. We knew the areas, right. it, it, you know, yeah. we knew the main stories. But it, it would have been too calculated to have yeah. sat down and said, you write this, I'm going to tell, you know, it was just, I mean, obviously we've, we've been together so long that it's inevitable that it was going to kind of just all mould together. Yeah, I mean, well, we knew the main stories, you know, the, the, <laughs> the bits that we wanted to uh, to approach. And uh, it was just lovely when we both finished it and going back and me starting to read Shirley's and Shirley reading mine, you know, it was just, it was a lovely experience. Was there a moment when you were reviewing each other's where you were kind of like, you can't say that. Hang on, no, 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 that's between yeah, us. Yeah, there were a few. <laughs> I said to Martin, you can't say yeah, that. Yeah, there were There's a no few way. I had to take out. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I was actually like, mistress. No, you know, red line, red line. Yeah, it would have been fine like 20 years ago, but uh, today's climate, you know, it's not so good. 
well, also, you need a follow-up, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's still yeah, a love story. Don't give story. too much away. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's an ongoing love story. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the classic rule of show, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's essential. But, I mean, you guys, I mean, the, the book is called It's a Love Story. And it's, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where, at the moment in this current climate, you know, everybody's in this very strange mm. chapter of time where we're all in it together. We're all mm. learning together mm. in this mad new world. The new normal keeps changing and we're following different rules. Yeah. And quite a lot of the light of life has been dimmed for everybody. Yeah. And actually having a story as, as honest and real and, and joyful yeah. as yours, and there are some serious challenging moments which mm. I'd like to talk about, but, but to be able to hook it on, it's a love story. The fact that you guys have this beautiful thing, you got yeah. together so young and you've stayed the distance. Mm. Because all marriages and all relationships have their ups and downs and they have their... So there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee in a relationship, is there? No. You know, all you make these vows, people say, I'll do, I'll, you know, all that. But life throws really hard situations at you. And even though I know we've stuck together, I don't condemn anyone who got divorced no. or I, I would hate anyone to feel, oh, I, I must be a failure. I didn't, I didn't save my marriage. Because I don't think it's for everyone. I don't. I think there's something like a divine intervention with two souls who are meant to be together. Yes, well, you, you clearly have some quite incredible, I don't know what the right phraseology is, but you mm. seem to have this almost second sight about certain it's things. It's just intuit intuition, really, being right. intuitive. No, no, let's get it right. Shirley's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> She's a witch. I've always known it. The, the cauldron was the giveaway. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. we'd have an argument. Yeah. No, no. I, I, yeah. don't want my <laughs> I do have a what lot of spooky moments in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, and you know, there are two key moments that are clear in your yeah. relationship. The first one is your knowledge that you were going to be going married. To marry. before, mm -hmm. Which, nowadays, it might be a bit weird. You, really? know, you kind of say that to someone. Scary, like, like, Hang on, stalker. You know, well, exactly, because <laughs> yeah. you can learn so much about someone from their Instagram posts. Or something. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, you might be able to. All right, hang on. Yeah, yeah. You but know. that definitely didn't. So, so it's lucky there wasn't <laughs> that. Yeah. Then. yeah. But crucially, you know, I hope you don't mind me saying. No, carry on. But yeah. you know, you've saved Martin's life. You know, mm. at, at the very least, you've saved his legs and his sight. Mm. Now the, yeah, the listeners might I, know what I might not know what I'm talking about, but, but you've, yeah. you've had two brain tumors. benign brain yeah. tumors. Yeah. Yes. I do wonder how far he would have taken it before he thought, mm, maybe I ought to go to a doctor, you know, because he was living with it and ignoring it. But I understand because you weren't having terrible side effects. Yeah. Well, there was a moment, you know, there was a moment that it, reality kind of st struck home. And I was out in Canada and um, Shirley, Shirley had mentioned to me that, oh, your head feels like you've got a little lump on there. And it, but it wasn't like a benign soft tissue it wasn't like a soft tissue lump. It was um, this. It was my skull. Right. So it was kind of like, what's going on? Bone you know, shape, it's very yeah. strange. Uh, and uh, I was out in Canada and I was filming an episode of The Outer Limits, which is this sci-fi movie. Yeah. And um, I was playing this uh, an old professor, scientist, who invented a formula for everlasting life. And so I'm like 200 years old, sitting in a makeup chair with this, you know, old uh, prosthetics on, and uh, they're just pulling over a ball cap over my head, you know, with a few wispy grey hairs on the side. And as they pulled the ball cap on, everyone in the makeup wagon just go quiet because the lump on my head is just outstanding. Oh, no. You know, where you couldn't see it under my hair so much, right. with the ball cap on top of it, it just looked like it was. Ayers Rock, it looked massive. And everybody looked at it and was going, something's going on there. And so I, f I finished the last day of shooting 
and then came straight back and I went straight to doctors, did my MRI. Yeah, but even though, no, but you went to the, our local GP. Yeah. And they weren't particularly bothered because Martin, you looked amazing. You were so fit physically at that time. You're in your thirties, you yeah. looked great. And I remember the GP saying, we think it's calcium growth, but where, because it was, so, okay. it was bone. And I wasn't worried. I thought that makes sense because yeah. he's perfectly well. And you didn't really hear much about people having brain tumours. So that didn't, so when- No, I did. I, one person after all, they said, so everyone kept saying to me, yeah, you know who else said that? Euthy Joyce. She died. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Thanks yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that example. But I think the biggest shock was to see someone who looked so good, so fit, and then four days later be taken into hospital to have it removed mm. and become some like but it was injured it, soldier. But, you, you know, like I, I, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, you know, that, that moment of this big thing on the back of my head showing itself. Mm. Because mm. when they x-rayed it, when they MRI'd it, what they found is one that was deep in the middle that would have killed me. Right. And um, that one there would have hidden itself. Mm. And it was only because of the big one on the back that they found that little one. And I would have had two years before that one would have uh, put too much pressure on what was around it because it was growing fast. That's terrifying, isn't mm. it? Yeah. I mean, but, which, but you know, sorry to interrupt, but it's uh, what the book tries to do is um, show that because our lives were incredible, really. Our story was just an upward graph all the way through, you know, from Spandau to Wham to going to Hollywood to, to enjoying life. And you never know what is around the corner. Mm. From one minute you're at the top of your game to the next minute you're on the floor. And uh, that story and trying to come out of that, the other side of that, five years later, it is what the book's about. Well, because that's the thing, isn't it? The, the first of the brain tumours was, mm. was a massive thing for you to deal with because it's the yeah. first hiccup, effectively, mm. at least to the, to the outside world. It's the first hiccup in your, in your lives, in your yeah. lives together, you know, and it's a massive one and it could have had horrific consequences yeah. that I imagine you've both thought about and shelved and left it, left it behind. But then yeah. you had a second one. Mm. I mean, but you, but you chose not to share that with the world. Well, because, um, because you know, I don't know if it was, I think at the time it was more about, I didn't want to be known as Martin Kemp brain tumor. Right. You know, this, you know, when you see a picture of yourself in a newspaper, when I see a picture of myself in a newspaper, I see, uh, they always put a little tagline like Martin Kemp Spandau Ballet or Martin Kemp EastEnders yeah. or the or craze. craze. Yeah, but yeah. all of a sudden I went for a period where it was just Martin Kemp brain tumor. Martin Kemp brain tumor, right. and I had to get out of that, and but that was also, depressing me. Can and uh, I... so, so sorry, Dan. And um, uh, you know, to go th to do that, and then five years later, I have to go through it again. Right. I thought I would never be anything else other than Martin Kemp brain tumor, the poster boy for brain tumor. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. when when he was going through it, he didn't once become a victim of it. Okay. He didn't talk about it much. You know, I wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but all mm. I knew was how he's dealing with it seems very um, positive because he was never questioned. I was the one, why has he got it? Yeah. I was trying to research, why do people get brain tumors? Because I asked the surgeon why, and he just looked at me and said, I don't know. And I, that devastated me. That So I was constantly, I mean, did we have the, I can't remember if we had the internet then or, or even a computer, but Martin was never, ever a victim of it. And I think that, 
courage and strength that he showed during that is most probably the other thing that saved him. Yeah, but you have that courage and strength because you don't want to lay it off on your family, right. you know, how bad you feel or, or how worried you are. The last thing you want to do is lay it off on people that are close to you and supporting you, like Shirley and my kids. You know, I didn't want to make it worse for Shirley, and which is um, which is why you know I'm such a huge believer in therapy, you know, okay. talking to people when you're in a hole like that, right. because you're talking to somebody that you don't know, you know, and they can take you can lay it all off on them and they can take it home and forget about it. Mm. But if you lay all your problems like that, you know, oh my God, I'm worried I'm gonna, you know, this is gonna be my last few days off on your wife, then she carries that and it comes back at you and it's ping pong. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and then everyone's affected and yeah, everyone's affected. affected. Because this I mean this had such a such an impact on your on your lives in so many ways. Yeah. I mean even financially, which is cool. financially that, was huge, but yeah. Huge. You know, the outside looking in again, you wouldn't think that, would you? Because yeah. if, you, if you'll excuse my naivety, yeah. you look at two very successful people that have been in the public eye since mm. the age of, well, pre-20s, in yeah. both your cases, and you just assume, loaded. Yeah, Don't you? You just kind of think you must have all the money you'll ever need. No, but after, but you know, we're this in is that changing. position, when we were in that position, after five years of not doing anything, yeah, um, it's difficult. And then it was difficult. And know? I wasn't working. And Pepsi and Shirley weren't working because I just just didn't want to do it. No. I just lost interest. And uh, there was something about me that suddenly, when you've actually experienced living a life where you are on jets and you're flying, you realize what's real. Mm. And all the money and all the traveling, all I could think of was if we have to live in a flat, as long as I have Martin and he's alive, I didn't care about anything else. And so I, I guess the concept of having money and having to live off our money was just such a basic necessity that the, you lose all that materialism, but other people are still looking at you yeah. as a materialistic person, you know, or you must have the cars and this and that. But I, we, we moved house, I just wanted to die. I just, I just mm. thought, I didn't know if Martin was gonna die. And all I could think was I've got two small children. How am I gonna look, how are we gonna survive without Martin? Mm. So we sold our house and then I looked around the house at things that I could sell thinking I don't need those things anymore. They don't represent me, then that's not who I am. Um, and it, it was testing, it's like I was being tested to see what really meant. See, uh, I, you know, I think what, it's another thing that we wanted to get across in the book is that, you know, we lead a, a really ordinary life, you know, Shirley and I and the kids, you know, we, we it may look extraordinary from the outside, but when you're inside our unit, it's really ordinary. Yeah. Uh, and we're the same as everybody else. And, and I think just because you're famous or you're a celebrity, uh, we're all the same, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very humbling story to read. And you know, mm. obviously one of the things that's so clear is, is your love and respect and the teamwork that you are, you know, the partnership that you are. I mean, prior to the brain tumor, of course, you'd, you'd already had, you weren't sure if you were ever going to have babies. That's right. And, and that's a, a huge thing to, to kind of play on someone's yeah. mind as well. Yeah. You know, Especially for a woman, because you feel that's your right. I mean, growing up as a young girl, you're always scared to get pregnant, thinking, oh, I would hate to get pregnant, and oh, she's that girl, we heard she's got pregnant, and it was kind of like, yeah, something you would fear. So when I did want, because I suffered from something called endometriosis, mm. 
and I was told when I was diagnosed with it, it could affect you having children. So that was like an alarm going off. Could affect children. I remember coming home and saying to Martin, we need to have children. He was like, oh, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready for children. I'm still in a band. I'm, I was I don't care. I, I need, so I'm still I, in a band. Yeah, was, yeah, I'm not going to be yeah. here. I'm on tour. And he just couldn't imagine how would I cope with it, a baby. Yeah. Yeah. It was so embarrassing. I know Shirley's in a terrible state, but it was so embarrassing to the point <laughs> where I went home to Shirley's mum one day. And Shirley's mum looked at me. She said, Martin, have you tried the wheelbarrow. I'm looking at it thinking, what? <laughs> we don't have a wheelbarrow. You, you can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, but listen, Shirley was going through a terrible time. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, so we go off to St. Lucia, we get married, and uh, on the night we get married, Shirley conceives a little daughter. Yeah. I do feel, once again, it is divine yeah, intervention. Yeah, yeah. On, on our wedding night, Shirley fell pregnant. Yep. And because uh, of course story. that was the first time you had sex. It, it, yeah, it's, just, it's yeah. a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a story that Roman doesn't want to read in the book. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those things that needs yeah. to be kept between. But it yeah. is a poignant thing, and I've been speaking to a lot of doing a lot of podcasts actually about women and infertility because right. it seems because women are trying later for babies now than ever that there is more infertility now than, than I can even remember. I thought I was the only one in the world in the 80s. Yeah. I thought everyone else is having babies, but uh, I think you're right. now it's, it's a big topic. Are, yeah, it's a, it's a really later, big topic yeah. now to, to express and talk about. No, it's a really important one, and I'm, I'm so, so impressed that you've been able to shine a light on it. In yeah. fact, you've raised mm. so many kind of important issues in this book, and, 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 and actually the conclusion of the book I want to come on to in a moment. But, sure. but I'm going to share a, a sort of paraphrase of a poem with you that's just kind of just talking to you now. It, yeah. It's making me think of it. You may already be aware of it. It's a Linda Ellis poem called The mm. Dash. Right. Are you familiar with it? No. Mm. It's about a man who's sitting in a graveyard looking at tombstones. Mm. And the whole ethos of it is, is it doesn't matter what year you were born or what year you died. It's that dash in between. Yeah. That's where you live. Oh, yes. And the phrase is, it matters not the houses, the cars, the cash, but it's how you live, love, and spend your dash. Mm. And when you were talking about what can I sell and don't care where we're living and all the rest of it, that's what matters. And mm. that's what you embody, actually. Yeah. And that's what your experiences have shown. Yeah. You know, mm. and actually you both allude to this in your conclusions about what you've yeah. learned from being together, etc. You know, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not about being handed this ticket to that or being in that show or being up on that stage mm. in front of those people. But it's, it's ego, you know, people are very caught up in their egos and I spot those people quickly and I run yeah. because I just can't bear anyone showing off about what they've done or what they own or, you know, it's not about that, it's who you are. Yeah. It's not what Let you, me what take you back have. just a second. Uh, this dash idea, I love it. Isn't Absolutely it great? love it. Yeah. yeah. Who is the writer? Uh, Linda Ellis. Linda Ellis. So I, I discovered it because, look at that. well, it's it's the most joyful thing, and since I've learned about idea. it, well, there's, there was this, there were these two Welsh rowers, two firefighters, yeah. mm. who rowed across the Atlantic, and they called themselves Team Atlantic Dash yeah. because they had decided they had they needed some time out. They mm. had been saving children and or not getting to fires fast enough, yeah. etc. And you, they'd seen a lot of horror in their lives, and then this poem came to their attention, and they realised that actually. They needed their dash to be fuller mm. than just the tragedies they were witnessing. Oh, I love that. Mm. It's really lovely. And, it's, yeah. and, and I, I mean, I got yeah. the privilege of meeting them when they, when they yeah. had finished yeah, rowing wow. and they told me this poem and I was just like, yeah, yeah. that was me changed yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so wonderful, wonderful. So brilliant. We yeah. all need to have, I mean, the thing that Martin and I are abundant in is empathy. Right. We are real empaths. So, you know, and people who don't have that are kind of missing what life's about. 
because that is such a huge ingredient. It, it's, it's what connects you to everyone and everything. You know, there's a big thing that I always said, um, which is kind of one of the same lines as that dash, you, for, for Harley and Roman, you know, when they've grown up, and we spoke about it so much, and uh, it was always, my advice to them was always, try and turn your hobby into your job. Yeah. Because that way you'll, you'll be successful, you'll be happy, successful, and healthy. And uh, that's pretty much what the dash is about. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. I've tried to find my own version for my yeah. kids. Because yeah. the yeah. dash is, to, you know, they're seven yeah. and three. You know, they don't quite yeah. get it yet. Yeah. So I just say, choose the fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. what, whatever you do yeah. in life, just choose the fun. Yeah. If it makes you laugh, that's then right. exactly. you're doing all right. Exactly. You know, yeah. which is really special. Mm. But I, two of the things that you conclude, which I absolutely love, you know, because this is, I mean, this is a lovely story. It's your story. It's unique to you. But it is a bit of a guide as well. I <laughs> hope so. Well, actually, I really hope so. It is, and I don't mean that in a self-helpy way. Yeah. Where you're not going to find it next to the yeah. para now or yeah. any kind of stuff. It's just a, be a good. Well, I'd like. I've read all those self-help. Yeah. I think the '90s for me, after Marty Musick, was I read every. And my bedside reading was, you know, like mountains of so, yeah, self-help. Eckhart Tolle's and all of oh, those. Oh, I've done it all. Yeah. 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 Living the moment and all yeah. that. And, it, all, yeah. and all it did that's help. Valid and great. It did help. Yeah. It helped because. There was no one else I wanted to talk to. Right. I wanted, I needed to feed myself and I didn't, I didn't really want to have, to have therapy. Yeah. So it was my own kind of way of, of Shirley went through to the what, trauma yeah. of Martin. Well, well uh, I was sick, Shirley went to everyone. She went to shamans, oh, mystics. Oh, I did shamanic. Really? Yeah, I did spirituals. lots of shaman work. Was it like, did you have them in the house? And, and Oh, I had people in the house ringing bells and lighting incense. Um, Blimey. I did everything, rebirthing for myself because when everything goes really wrong, you know, I, Martin, it didn't happen to Martin, but for me, I felt like I need to make everything go right. Okay. I need to look much deeper into this. Yeah. It was like a manual. And I thought, how come, you know, who can I? And I didn't feel there was anyone around me that I could ask the question. So I just went inward. I read lots of self-help. I looked for any clues of past life. You know, how could I, why did this happen? And did I find the answer? I, I think, yeah, I think to me it was being more humble, more compassionate, understanding of others. Because I think, you know, we, we led this life that was about us being pop star, you know, pop stars. And what number in the charts are you and what yeah. country are you flying to? And all of a sudden I am now face to face with, because when Martin was in the hospital, I'm visiting, I'm, you're passing every other family, yes. you know, parents with children with tumours. And, and you connect with those people through such a raw emotion mm. of you just want these people to live. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that whole thing, but the self-help was a great. So if our book, if anyone reads it and thinks, wow, they, that is what's important in life, love and empathy and compassion, that's what I would love someone to get from it. But I have to say in the book that the, the self-help stuff is probably the funniest, the stories of the shaman and stuff. Yeah. Which, yeah, I held I really back on some, so I didn't yeah. want to put it too... <laughs> book two. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Well, precisely. Yeah. You, you need a follow-up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, three of the things that, that you, you surmise in your conclusions, and I'm, I'm going to combine part yeah. of what you say because we can't kind of take it turn and turn. Cool. Yeah. You know, the three things that, that I love that kind of stand out. The first one is, I believe you, Martin, say, listen to your kids. Yeah, that's you know, right, yeah. Tip, tip to parenting is yeah. just just listen to you. Yeah, yeah. listening is the most yeah. important part of parenting, I think. And Shirley and I always, we never wanted the naughty step, you know, in the house. We always wanted um, 
I mean, listen, it's different for everybody, but with our kids, we never wanted that naughty step. What I wanted was to create um, dialogue and I wanted to talk to the kids. I wanted them to become articulate enough to be able to put their point across. Yeah. So if they were being naughty, tell me why you're being naughty and I'll listen to it. And if your point is better than mine and you win the argument, then fine, do what you want to do. You yeah, know, watch, that. stay yeah. until 12. Yeah. If you can prove to me and articulate to me that the reason why you should be staying up till 12, and we'll have the discussion Roman about it. Roman could always win. I was going to say. He oh, was, my goodness. Is that why they both look exhausted? He was, he was amazing at coming up with his point of view, and you had to give it to him. You were like... Yeah. Honestly, I get it. I get yeah. it. Well, yeah. good for you for standing by it, though. Yeah. But, you know. but he was a nightmare because he was so, <laughs> you know, he's in the best job he could ever be in now. He was so articulate when he was a kid. And uh, I, we would literally have dinner around our house and that we would, there would be um, all our friends and there'd be George Michael at one end, there'd be uh, Roman at the other end, and we would have to walk away and leave those two at it. And just arguing with each other. But, but, but they did agree a lot of times. They, they, they kind of did, did love. I, I saw a similarity. Shirley, all them. I remember is us going in the living room, they're, <laughs> and they're in the dining room, and all I can hear is, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And he was only like 15, you know. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Oh, that's perfect. So, so listening to the kids is one of them, yeah, which I absolutely. love. Yeah. A key one, which is, I mean, it's throughout the book, but I love that you, you're so concise with it at the end as well, which is be kind, for goodness mm, kindness. sake. Just be kind. <gasps> that's my biggest. And I will say, so when I first saw a picture of Martin in a magazine, I remember saying to George, because I'm, I'm like, oh God, he looks so kind. And George went, oh, of course he looks kind. kind. Face, he's good looking. Everyone is good. Don't you get it? And I was going, no, I, I promise you that he's a really kind person. So when I met him, that kindness blew me away because he was kinder than I even thought. So, uh, oh. And I look for that in everyone. People who are kind to animals, kind to children, kind yeah. to nature, kind to anything. Is I, I would not be friends with anyone who doesn't have that kindness in them. That's lovely, mm. That's, and it's and it's vital, you know. It's and, vital, and, yeah. And you sort of hope that this year, this thing that we're living through, is highlighting that to mm. people right mm. now. Well, yeah. you know what I, mm. I really think is that what it's done this year is made people a lot less materialistic. Right. And I think if you you know people are talking about different things, you know, rather than what have you got? What am I trying to get? You know, my house or my, or the car that I'm aiming to get. And people are looking at talking about different things, which I think in some well, ways... It's more I survival, some, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I hope some of that sticks. Well, also currency's yeah. changed, hasn't it? You know, yeah. In that yeah. sense, like, I would, I would do a lot for a hug right now. Yeah, yeah, you know what, what I mean? mean. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's those that, things, that's the stuff you mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all, all of a sudden, you know, um, uh, having dinner, roast dinner with your, your friends around your house is more important than, um, you know, <laughs> what new car you're going to buy. There's a, there's a key piece of advice, which I... I'm going to follow, although I'm, I'm not quite ready to do it yet, which is the, what I believe is one of your secrets to a strong relationship, mm -hmm. and that is get a dog. I knew you were going to say <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah, I can see the way you're thinking. I can't, can't commit to a dog yet. We've always had dogs. So when I met Martha, I grew up with dogs, always had dogs in my family. My dad had these huge German shepherds. So when I met Martin, I said, I really want, so we had this two-bedroom flat, top floor in Islington. I said, I really want a dog. He was going, you can't have a dog. We're in a flat. Oh, I do. I really want a dog. So he never really had dogs, so he wasn't feeling yeah. it. So I went out and I got a Doberman. Oh, wow. You, that's and not just any that's dog. Not, and, that's, <laughs> and I <laughs> had it in the flat and I could hear Martin coming up the stairs, up to the flat, door open. 
and the dog looking and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. I think the dog, I think I've gone too far. I think I should have got like a little yeah, Pomeranian yeah. thing. And then I hear him and the dog runs towards him. And she had these huge pads, uh, paws. And uh, he went, what is it? I said, it's a Doberman. And he was just like, why? Why have you got a Doberman? And it was ridiculous. And yeah, ridiculous. we went out one night and she tore the house up. She had pooed and weed everywhere. And he's going, we can't do this. We can't. And I said, well, we have to move. We're not getting rid of the dog. We've got Amazing. to. We have to move. No, Shelley's being polite. Pooed and weed everywhere. No, it was an ice skating ring. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and he had never had a dog. And I knew you have to go through these kind of phases. Yeah. Same as you do with babies and nappies. And so... Uh, but oh, I, we got I, through it. I know what Shirley's talking about when she says uh, they're good for your relationship, you know, because uh, they are. There's something that you love, especially now, Shirley and I, uh, you know, our kids have left home. And so we've gone through that whole empty nest syndrome. And yeah. You always need to feel that. Always. You have to. And dogs are so important. Every evening so he's got one dog on his lap and I've got yeah. one dog on my lap. I bet you do. So. Well, because you guys, I mean, you're, you're only a little bit older than me, but in terms yeah. of your, your kids' ages are very different to mine. Mm. Yeah. And so I'm already, I mean, my, you know, seven, three and, and yeah. almost here. You're so lucky. I'm terrified already yeah. about, you know, when they'll stop giving me cuddles and things, let alone when they leave. I mean, yeah. you when you're looking up at them, <laughs> oh, you can't even that. cuddle them. <laughs> I'll be okay with that bit. It's just when they go. I mean, I, I'm already oh, thinking hard. in my head, how do I make the house irresistible for them? Yeah. Yes. You know, do yeah, I put the secret layer? Oh, yeah. you know, oh, we tried everything. Yeah. yeah. Really? We tried everything. We did as well. We had games yeah. rooms and everything. Get your friends to come over. What do you want? Pizzas? They can have pizzas. PlayStation because, get PlayStation. <laughs> because what's difficult is you don't just lose them, you lose all their friends. Yeah. You lose all the noise. The you know, when Roe went, it was like all the boys that would come over for Sunday to watch football in totally. the TV room, that had all gone. And so it becomes really quiet and it comes back to you, you yeah. know, back to your original relationship. Yeah. And uh, you, you look for things to fill that void. But in the end, it doesn't. You, and you forget about that. And it just comes back to you and your yeah, original get, so relationship. You get, yeah. Make sure you get dogs. <laughs> so you get dogs. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. The poos and wheeze need to be yeah. back. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Back that way. No, no I learned my lesson. You know, uh, you get a big dog, you get big poo. Little dog, get a little poo. <laughs> get a little dog. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger the dog, the bigger the yeah, dog. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good old phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant, um, guys. It's I mean, it's it's a just it's a real pleasure. The story is lovely. Oh, and, thank and you so much. You guys are such fantastic company. Thank you. You know, you radiate just kind and nice and warmth and oh, thank it's you a lovely thing much. to be around thank so I really much. appreciate That's your time nice really you. appreciate it the Andy J podcast there we go. Well, that's it for this week. Three pods landing in a week. You're not going to have to wait long, though, because I can tell you that I'm recording this weekend's radio show as we speak, and I've got four very cool guests lined up, and at least three of them I'm going to be going well over allocated hours. Uh, I mean, you know, usually you get sent, oh, you can have 12 minutes with this person if it's on the radio or maybe whatever. Anyway, each of my guests that are coming on the show this week, they are going to be, oh, I would say a good half hours, some of them even maybe longer. So we'll be putting those out individually again next week, just because it seems like a fun thing to do. So look, thank you very much for your company. Tell your friends about the show and just keep spreading the word. Thank you so much. Let's have a great week, guys. Be kind. Be nice. Go make someone smile. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.